When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. These days, when intellectual modesty is viewed as an outdated curiosity and the Twitter sphere is deluged with everyone shamelessly trumpeting their thought leader status, the word polymath has naturally been devalued beyond recognition. Well, Words change, of course, but one of the truly unfortunate consequences of living in a world replete with self-proclaimed geniuses lurking behind every corner is that those very few who are truly exceptional are often not given their proper due. So take a moment to listen to the wonderful Freeman Dyson, the polymath's polymath, who sadly left us in February 2020 in order to remind yourself what a truly exceptional human being is capable of doing in one lifetime. We, we have met once before, and you probably don't remember because it was not a terribly significant uh, event for you, but it was for me. Um, so I'm guessing you don't remember, so I'll just keep going. Okay. So this was back in 2000, and I was going on a little tour of various places because I was tasked with this rather odd job of building uh, a physics institute, and I didn't... Uh, have any idea what I was doing. Um, and so I wanted to talk to as many wise people as I could about what sorts of things uh, one should do if one is building a physics institute. And everything from how to structure it to uh, how to interact with the surrounding community, of course, research areas, interaction with the, uh, with the wider non-academic world and the whole nine yards. You were good enough to give me quite a bit of your time and, and spoke uh, extensively and very informatively about a wide range of things and in a very, very humble way, very, uh, I think, quite typical way. Uh, you mentioned something to the effect that um, this, was, uh, this was a wonderful place, the Institute for Advanced Study, but you probably shouldn't have stayed around for as long as you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should be careful to not have people who hang around for, for 60 years or something. Yes, no, it is true. It is, of course, even worse now than it was then. <laughs> Yes. Um, 
So that's the Perimeter Institute. That's right. Yes, I went there about three years ago and spent a few days. It was, it was delightful to be there. I'm, I'm not too happy with what they're doing, but... Uh, well, why... why uh, well, it seemed very narrow. And yes. Well, I'm not there anymore, you see. It used to be yes. much broader. It used to be much better. Now it's all gone to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate. Um, so uh, I did want to talk a little bit about... Um, the, the scientific temperament, as I mentioned before, to kick things off. And, um, and one of the things which I think is so remarkably intriguing about yourself is that you, you seem in many ways to be the exception that, that proves the rule. So let me give you a sense of what I mean by that. When we had this earlier conversation 15 years ago, there was a sense of what sort of people would make for a good institute, what, what sort of what characters of researchers would fit together well? There are the people who do this, the people who do that, the, the, the people who live in isolation, the people who like to interact, and, and, and all this sort of thing. And you also have categories of people who work in different areas, those who are much broader, those who are much narrower, as you were saying. Um, and, you know, this old cliche that uh, the academics know more and more about less and less, they know everything about nothing. And and that, I think, from my limited experience, there is some truth to that, to the extent that there are people who are quite narrow and deep, and there are people who tend to be quite broad and shallow. You seem to be the exception that proves that rule, and you're the exception insofar as I can tell, because you are both exceptionally broad and exceptionally deep. I'm not exa I'm exactly sure how you manage that. So you're going to say, no, 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 no. But I'm going to come up with a question. But th this, is, this is my sense, that somebody who has made seminal research contributions to so many different areas uh, of, uh, of physics from, of course, quantum electrodynamics, uh, quantum many-body systems, all aspects, uh, different aspects of solid-state physics, then you go off and you're involved in building spaceships, uh, you, you do interesting work in biology, of course your core upbringing was in pure math, and, and I just, uh, well I should come with a question rather than this hagiography, hey, but, but it, it, it strikes me as, as, um, as remarkable that you're able to combine an incredible intellectual breadth with such intellectual depth. It, am I completely off base here? Do you, do you view yourself this way at all? Or do you view yourself as atypical in any particular way? No, I think what is different about me is that I've had two quite separate lives. And, and my life as a scientist, which has been very conventional. I mean, I'm, all, all I do as a scientist is old-fashioned mathematics. And it's... Uh, applied to different problems in different areas, but it's essentially the same tools. So I'm a, a sort of a good old-fashioned 19th century applied mathematician, and uh, that's what I do professionally. Then on the other side, I'm a writer, and uh, as a writer, I have a totally different point of view. I'm interested in lots of different things. I don't try to be deep. I, I try to be broad, and, and uh, so that's why you see both sides and it looks unusual. Well, I disagree. Um, <laughs> so here's why I disagree, because I, I want to get to the writing side and the, and, and, and the, the, the broader socially relevant side, if you will. 
Um, but let's just stay with the science for a little bit. So um, within, if, if you look at the contributions that you've made within physics um, and the contributions within mathematics uh, alone, that seems to be a, a, a rather large spectrum. Let me, rather than try to engage in this ridiculous argument that I'm not going to win anyway, even though <laughs> I'm convinced that I'm right. Um, let me give you an anecdote of something that happened to me this morning. So uh, I had uh, the good fortune of having breakfast with one of your colleagues, who shall remain nameless, and I said to him, uh, is there anything that you would like me to ask Freeman when we have our conversation? And he said, he thought for a while, and he said, yes, ask him how he does it. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't me. This is, <laughs> this is actually one of your colleagues. But anyway, en enough of the hey geography. I want to, let me be a little bit more specific, because um, in, in the, the recent biography, which came out uh, just several weeks ago, I think, of, uh, of you, there is, um, there is something I'd like to check up on, which I think is relevant to all of this. So there was a sense that, uh, in this biography that as you were working on uh, your work in quantum electrodynamics, you were, um, so I'm paraphrasing, but correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an understanding that you were trying to uh, finish off the theory in the right way. And for me, uh, the understanding of what finish off the theory in the right way is you look at this expansion of all these terms, and these terms should be converging on something. There shouldn't be a divergent series. It should be mathematically converging on something. And, and uh, you were convinced that, in fact, that they should converge. And then later on, you recognize that no, they do not converge. Right. Um, and and, f and this, was, this is something which is, I think, conceptually still reverberating. It's cer certainly reverberating for me. It's, 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 it's unpleasant. Uh, perhaps I'm not brought intelligent enough to understand uh, um, the fact that there is an answer somewhere. But it, it's, a, it's a deeply disconcerting notion. Um, and the conclusion from uh, this book, and I don't remember who was quoted, was that at that point you decided you weren't going to invest an enormous amount of intellectual energy in one particular idea like you had with quantum electrodynamics because you were so disconsolate at the idea that this series wouldn't convert. It, my, first, my, my first real question to you after all this rambling is, uh, is that true in your view? So let me just ask that. Is that true? And th to the extent that um, your disposition changed, that, that you decided, no, consciously or unconsciously, I'm not going to devote a, a, as much intellectual energy towards one fundamental issue anymore like I have with this because you were so disconsolate at the idea that this, this series didn't actually converge? No, I don't think that's true. Okay. It, it, it's, um, of course, it's, I mean, I can't remember anything after 60 years. It's, uh, it's all... <laughs> I have just to make it up because I can't really remember. Sure, make it up. Yeah, no but, one will know. But uh, no, what really happened was uh, that I didn't contribute any new ideas to that whole discussion. That, I mean, the ideas were all worked out essentially by Dirac and Fermi, Heisenberg 15 years earlier. And so what we were doing in the 40s was just cleaning it up to make it user-friendly so that you could actually use the theory. And so that was what I was engaged on, was just cleaning up the details. There was nothing new as far as the physics was concerned and uh, 
But the cleaning up of the details was a job I could do, and that was the, that's what I really enjoyed. It was great fun, and and uh, so that's what I did for a couple of years. And of course, uh, we thought the thing was going to converge, and then you'd have a complete closed, mathematically consistent theory, and sure. and uh, that would have been nice. But on the other hand, in a certain way. Finding out it did not converge made it even more interesting in a way that uh, certainly I wasn't disconsolate about that. I, it made it actually more of a challenge. But I think what I, I did decide, I'd done enough at that point. I'd worked on it for two years and I needed a change. So I decided then to go off and do spin waves instead. And, and Right, uh, which is quite a, quite a change. Not much. I mean, it's, yeah. it's essentially the same problem. Really? Just cleaning, just sort of cleaning up the details in the same, really the same kind of a situation. The physics wasn't very different. Okay. And so what I'm good at is cleaning up the mathematics. And of course, just in the last two years, I worked with Bill Press on the... Right, on the... On the dynamo, dynamo, right. It was the same situation where... He had the ideas, and I just cleaned up the mathematics. Well, there's this overly self-effacing thing which is coming back. So again, this is an argument that, that we shouldn't engage in, let alone be trying to win, because you, you can always be more self-effacing. Since you actually did the work, you can always win by no, saying... But I mean, it's true that, anyway, there's a sort of a, a style which is still the same after 60 years. That, uh, that, that's, that's when I'm doing technical work, that's what it is. But so let me bring this back to to a question related to the scientific temperament, which is the way I promised to to start off. Do you do you find this unique? In my experience, this is somewhat unique. You say you're just cleaning things up, okay? But uh, in my experience, there are people who work in a wide variety of different fields, and they're scratching the surface. Um, and then there are people who really focus on one or two areas and they devote a vast amount of time and effort in those particular areas. And some of them achieve real success, real foundational success. Right. Um, do you, first of all, do you agree with that basic categorization of different types of researchers? Or do you, do you think that, yes. no, no, no. And I suppose, I mean, somebody like me is Chandrasekhar and who, he, he has the same style and also right. jumped around always from That's one thing right. to another. Right, right. Okay. But, I, I mean, the, the cleaning things up... Um, it, it, anyway, this is an argument I'm not going to win, but, I, I, but, but it should be pointed out to other people who, don't, um, who aren't aware that, uh, that a vast number of people uh, believe that you should have won the Nobel Prize uh, along with uh, Feynman and Schwinger and Tom Nanga, and many of those people are Nobel laureates themselves. And this is not just this. This is not me saying this. These are people who uh, really know what they're talking about. Um, so most uh, most people believe that your contributions were very very fundamental in this area and and go far beyond just cleaning up other ideas. However, um, a, another distinction that I think is is worth making in terms of uh, researchers is pure and applied. You said you're an applied mathematician. Yes. Um, that's an interesting way of looking at it. You certainly have done a lot of applied mathematics, uh, 
but you've also done a lot of pure mathematics as well. And so well, again, this is a divide that, that you seem to be straddling that other people don't do, in my view. Yes, well, I, I mean, again, Chandra Sekhar uh, uh, wrote a very nice piece about this where he made it, uh, I forget the words he used, but anyway, the point is that really the, 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 the distinction isn't between what you apply it to, but whether it is applied. I mean, that... Uh, <laughs> that that uh, I never created any mathematics. All I did was to use mathematics to solve puzzles, and, and and sometimes the puzzles were in pure mathematics, and sometimes they were in physics. But in both cases, it was really what I would call applied mathematics. That I was solving problems using mathematics, not producing new mathematics. And and that's. Uh, the same is true of Chandrasekhar, of course, that hmm. he wasn't a, a pure mathematician in my sense. Have you, has your attitude evolved in terms of mathematics and mathematical interests? I mean, if, years and years ago, you were in Cambridge with Hardy and all the rest of this. Is this, this is the pure mathematical temple that you're, you, you, were, you were experiencing in your, in your formative years. Um, did you, did, do you think you, you, your views of mathematics, what mathematics is and how it can be applied or how it should be applied or whether it even should be applied at all, has, has that changed over the years? Well, a little bit, yes. I mean, the, the, because mathematics itself has grown so much and, and, and I stayed in the 19th century and <laughs> <laughs> mathematics has moved ahead. And <laughs> You, you don't have any uh, any Platonist dispositions, do you? You don't strike me as a... As oh, a I, oh, yes. I, I think, I mean, I, I mean, if you think, if you talk about Platonism as believing mathematical world is real, yes. Oh, you are a Platonist? Oh, yes. Well, okay. that seems pretty obvious. Right. So... Um, so it's... it's you've, you've always You've always been a... You've always been a Platonist. In the sense of, of thinking that the mathematical world is real, but of course, the mathematics has acquired a huge freedom which it didn't have in the old days. So now there's not just one mathematics, but there's a whole library of different mathematics. Sure, but that's that's neither here nor there with, with respect to the Platonist argument. No. Right? I mean, we're just discovering new stuff that's already there. Right. So as, as a diehard Platonist, how would you respond to the question of how do we gain access to this, this metaphysical world, which it's a miracle. Exists. It's just a plain miracle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> okay. No, it's like music. And did you ever read a piece by Danny Hillis called the, the, the Songs of Eden? No, I did not. It's a wonderful piece. You know, Danny Hillis is a yeah. computer guy. He's a wonderfully creative guy. You should talk to him. Okay. And anyway. He wrote this piece called The Songs of Eden, which is explaining the origin of language. And so his notion is music came first and then language second. Right. And I think that has a lot to be said for it. And, and anyway, so we have this view of evolution, which he's propounding, that there was a collection of apes who didn't actually evolve very much. But the things that evolved were the songs. The apes were singing songs, and and, uh, and so that evolved into language. And, and the songs had to survive. And the question is, if you're a song, 
how do you survive? You have to, 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 to be imitated. You have to find an ape who will imitate you and preserve you for the next generation. And how do you be, make sure you get imitated? Best way is to attach some meaning to yourself. So the songs had a strong incentive to attach meaning. So the songs came first and then meaning came, and came the meaning was after that. Meaning was attached to the songs. <laughs> so it was gradually became a language. And, and I, th I think this is a beautiful idea. And, hmm. and something of the same sort probably happened with mathematics. Well, but the mathematics in some way came first, right, and and then science second. Hmm. And historically, that's true, of course. That the Greeks had mathematics, but they didn't really have science. Let me move to the to the idea of being a contrarian. Yes, if I may. Um, you're a proud contrarian, but that's in my literary life. I mean, that's it's it's not true in in, in my scientific life. It's true. It's true in my life as a writer. So you wouldn't regard yourself, contrarian is perhaps not the right word, but certainly fiercely independent thinker, scientifically? No, I, I mean, I've been on the whole very conventional in the science. Mm. The things I do are not particularly contrarian. So, so tell me more about as a, a, as a writer, what you, what you mean by that. Well, as a writer, I always like to take the minority view and, and to provoke the reader rather than just to console him and <laughs> so so to be an effective writer the one provokes one is provocative one y yes and uh, so i make a living now by writing book reviews and, and which i enjoy very much it's sort of uh, you know it suits my attention span i she's <laughs> getting shorter as time goes on and and so I, I read a book and write a review in a couple of weeks and move on to something else. And so I find that a good way to keep, to keep up with the intellectual life of the times and also to, to develop opinions. But, but scientifically, because there's this when I, as I'm casting my mind back and I, you've had interestingly provocative ideas in biology with respect to the origin of life, which was, right. which was uh, certainly went, seemed to go against the grain of some uh, established ideas. No, that's true, and of course, but I never did biology. I was just writing about it, and that's a different game. I see, so, so this is as a, as a hobby rather than... It was than as, a, as a critic. And, and and it seemed to me quite clear that the biologists were missing something. And duality we see in the living world of metabolism and replication, which are to two totally separate kinds of chemistry. And, hmm. and, and it's always taken for granted that replication had to come first. And that seemed to me most unlikely. Okay. I want to get back to that because I want to explore um, a, a variety of different issues with respect to your views on biology as a, as a critic, as a hobbyist, call it, call it what you will. But I also had a sense from reading your writings that it's part of being, perhaps contrarian is, is, is not the right word, or, or even a rebel or heretic or all these words that are thrown around, but it seems like um, you're advocating uh, a, a consistent belief that Scientists should be skeptical, yes. and scientists should 
represent consistently the view of, uh, of an independent thinker. That's part of the scientific perspective. That's part of the scientific training. That's part of what scientists, uh, that's part of the role that they should have in society. Is that, is that a fair? Absolutely, is that yes. a fair statement? And it, it, if you look at science today, if you look at physics today, do you have a sense that there are as many independent, bold, uh, original, creative, potentially rebellious thinkers as, as there were 50 or 60 years ago? No, there definitely is not. No, I would say physics is not in good shape at the moment. Okay. So, so why do you think that is? Well, it's, I, th I would say it's, it's a historic process. I don't know whether there's anything we could do about it, but uh, physics has become very slow and cumbersome. The experiments take 10 or 20 years to do, and it, the whole thing becomes more and more sort of like a military operation. And <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it's sad, I mean, but it's true. And, and meanwhile, astronomy is racing ahead, and I talk much more to the astronomers here than I do to the physicists. Astronomy is just much more exciting. It, because of all the data, because of it, all the, yes, the, the and, phenomena. And, and one person can actually make a difference. And, and, right. and it's full of heretics, of course. And, so you think it's, it's, it's sociological driven by the field because there's so much that's going on in the field and one person can make a difference and there's so much data, that attracts those people of that disposition? Yes, it, so if you're a bright, young, a bright young person at the moment, I, I would say keep away from physics. It's, uh, it's not <laughs> something I don't want to, to, to have repeated too loud. But uh, Oh, well, should we strike that one from the record? Maybe. Then? <laughs> <laughs> But it's 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 noticeable for me. I mean, what one of the other what one of the many uh, wonderful things about talking to you is you f you feel this this incredible connection with so many people who have passed through this institution, who have passed through other institutions, who have entered uh, the the status of of legend. You've 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 got just about every famous physicist of the twentieth century who you either worked with, who you've encountered, and you. you you know, you have philosophers, you have George Kennedy, you have, you have, you have this whole world of, of, of people. And it, it seems to me that um, the, if you just look at physics, it was crackling with these incredibly brilliant but opinionated rebellious individuals. And you get this sense of sparks flying all over the place. People were yelling and arguing and, and, and brilliant, crazy potentially wrong ideas were being thrown left, right, center, and sideways. And you certainly don't have a sense of that as a bystander looking at the field of physics today. Right. But other fields there are. And those, those people who had that disposition are going into fields that are better suited towards being able to exhibit that. Is that Yes, fair? and a lot of them are now in biology and neurology, of course. And I was over at the Rockefeller University a few weeks ago and, and because neurology is jumping ahead now, that's right. and there it's, it's full of controversies. And so I took a strong line there and told them that the brain is analog and not digital, and really? they better <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they better change their well. They, if they're trying to simulate the brain, they better th not try to do it with digital machines. And, so why 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 is that? Why do you why do you believe that? 
Well, it looks very plausible. What the brain does really well is associative memory of comparing images, comparing sounds, comparing sequences of sounds, which we do wonderfully well. Right. And it all looks much more analog than digital, right. just, just from a subjective point of view. And what was the response? Well, I mean, they were they were quite interested actually, and I mean, I don't know. You should talk to them. And no, no, I, I'm, I'm talking to you now. So, <laughs> that's all. Yeah, they were polite, but and, uh, <laughs> 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 having this old guy from Princeton tell them what to do. <laughs> Similar story. <laughs> um, you wrote, uh, as you say, your latest. Um, I can't remember the words that you used, but the, the way you win your living now is writing book reviews. A very mm -hmm. recent review that you wrote was uh, was on a book by uh, Mario Livio of, of, of blunders in, uh, in, in science. Yes. And there is this subtext to, to that whole book, I think, which is um, one has to, if one wants to be a scientist, one has to have uh, the courage to be wrong. One, exactly, one has to jump yes. in and make mistakes. That's part of what being being. Uh, it's absolutely right. Yes, you've got to make mistakes. I mean, it's true of engineering too. Right. And and this idea that you can plan everything so you won't make mistakes is just fatal. So that that also is part of of the the attitude of of the right sort of spirit of enterprise. You have to have somebody who is. Whether, again, whether they're rebellious or whatever, they're doing something not to just go against conventional wisdom, but to be going out on a limb. Yes. And I'm, st I'm still not convinced by the argument that because physics, um, it, because it, it's very difficult to have a high energy experiment and all the rest of this sort of thing, that, that the people who are incredibly uh, courageous or rebellious or potentially contrarian or not necessarily in that field. I mean, one could argue the other thing, presumably. One could say, well, there's no data anyway, so you can come up with this, that, or the other thing. You can come up with whatever crazy theory you want. It would encourage people who are incredibly speculative and incredibly bold and visionary, but it doesn't seem to be. No, well, there are parts of physics which are, which are flourishing. Quantum computing is an example. Right. I mean, there's a lot of bright people in Austria who are doing that. And, and I mean, Austria has now become a sort of world center for it, and right. and that's uh, that's great, and and uh, it sort of helps to be a small country in a way, isn't it? Specializes to focus one's resources and yes. so forth. Let, let me let me move. Uh, I don't want to be spending all this time on physics because apparently physics is dead now, anyway. So not it's not dead. No, <laughs> no there, are, there, are, there are still great things going on in physics, and, and but it's mostly the small stuff which doesn't get the attention. And, the problem is that the public has this idea that it's only interesting if it's expensive, and right, and that's 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 a, a political problem. Well, it, it, that also brings to mind uh, something that you wrote about. Again, we're getting a little bit back to scientific temperament, but you you talked about different classes of of scientists as uh, unifiers and diversifiers. Yes. I, I think, and and. Um, this, I think, leads into my next question, which is, uh, I would argue, is indicative of some unorthodox views that you've espoused in physics, which has to do with reductionism. Most mm -hmm. physicists are diehard reductionists. Yes. You are not a diehard reductionist, to put it mildly. Right. Um, so uh, maybe before I, I start talking more about it, I'll ask you to embellish upon your views of, of 
what you think is wrong with reductionism or why you wouldn't consider yourself a, a reductionist, diehard or otherwise? Yes, well, I suppose it's mostly a matter of taste. I just, I mean, I'm, I like things to be complicated. I'm more interested in the details than in the big picture. I mean, when I, when I sort of, I, I like astronomy, but I'm not so much interested in cosmology. I mean, you know, it is, hmm. um, cosmology, it sort of tries to fit the whole thing into one simple picture. And, and I find it's much more interesting to look at these amazingly complicated details, which we're discovering all the time. And so it's, it, I think it's mostly a matter of taste. But it applies certainly also to, to the relationship between physics and chemistry. There's, in a certain sense, chemistry is just a, 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 a sub-branch of physics, but actually it's not. And in fact, chemistry has its own concepts, and you don't get very far just with the Schrodinger equation. And right. But, but it's, I, I want to push you a little bit, because I, th I think that you believe that it's more than just a matter of taste. Yes. Um, I think nature sort of speaks the, 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 the language which is not reductionist. And you give, a, you give a, a, a tangible example. This is an old example, but I think it's quite a revealing example, at least for me. You mentioned um, years ago when Oppenheimer came up with the black hole solution of Einstein's equations, and Einstein didn't like it, and then eventually Oppenheimer pulled back from it a little bit, the significance of it. But for you, that was, an, uh, and, and of course for most people, well, for everyone, I think it's now recognized that was an incredibly uh, important event yes. to understand nature, to understand yes. the world through these, through these things. And this is a case of a particular example, rather than looking at it from a holistic, general exactly. uh, framework. This is, this is, I mean, it, you don't just need the equations, you need to understand the solutions. Right, right. <laughs> But, but that, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a fascinating approach because that's not the way that a normal physicist is trained or, right. or, or goes, through, goes through his or her education. There's this sense of they're the big things. The only thing that counts are the, the, the unifying field equations and the big yes, completely you put synthetic solutions. On the T-shirt, you write the Maxwell equation right. or the Dirac equation. Right. <laughs> but that's a very, I think that's a very significant conceptual statement yes. to, to say that no, a particular solution to any equation will lead to uh, uh, an understanding that can be just as deep, if not deeper, than anything else. Exactly. No, that was the argument I had with Oppenheimer. Right. See, there you go again, name dropping. So let, let me ask you uh, a few other questions about, uh, about physics. I, um, and this is just, perhaps this is me just indulging myself, but, uh, but there you go. So, and, and maybe I'll go for the, the, the two uh, over-glorified questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway, since I'm sitting across from you. So the anthropic principle. Yes. What are your thoughts on the anthropic principle? I hate the word, okay. because it's, it's, it implies that humans are, are all that matters. I mean, Okay, we don't have to say human. We can, we can see the whatever. We can generalize. Yes. I mean, the, the notion that the mind is somehow built into the structure of the universe, I think, is something that appeals to me. And that, that it's not just a, a machine, but it is a, something with a soul. And, and, and uh, so that uh, it, it may very well be that 
it's essential to the universe that it's able to understand itself. And so what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Help me. I'm looking at this from a... Well, that the, the, that if you look at the, just the rules of physics and chemistry, that they seem to be peculiarly well adapted to the existence of life and, and, and the existence of minds. And, and, and maybe that's not an accident. And that's what I would consider the sort of my form of the anthropic principle. Not that the universe was designed for us, right. but it was designed in some way to be aware of itself. And, and, and how is this self-awareness manifested through us or through life? No, it's, I mean, certainly we're part of that. And, but also there's this remarkable fact that the individual atoms have free will, and, and which is something which seems to be very much built into the structure that I mean, quantum mechanics really works and, and tells you every atom is in fact free to do what it please, what it, whatever it pleases. And, and okay, you're like, hold, hold, you're, I, I want to come back to this. But let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me back up a little bit because there are a lot of concepts that are, um, that are coming at once, at least to me. Um, let me go to this idea of mind. Yes. Um, does that imply, it seems to me that it would imply that there's a lot of, let's just call it mind stuff, in the universe. Yes. So that, that seems a direct implication of what you're saying. That this, yes. Because this it would be, if the universe is made somehow made for mind or, or directly linked with mind, then it would be seemingly paradoxical for there to be only one place where there's mind-related stuff. So it should be yes. teeming with mind stuff. Yes, it, it, which it, it, of course we don't we don't have any evidence for that, but right, but that 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 follows from yes. from, from from that view. Um, now let's move um, let's move to free will, um, and 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 quantum theory or not yes. associated with that. Um, so uh, when you say atoms have free will, I, I don't know what I, I don't even know what that means. No, but, I don't either. Okay. But, I mean, what we know from Quantum mechanics actually works, and it tells you that the individual atom is unpredictable. That uh, right, okay. That all you can calculate is probabilities, and that's what the theory does. So, so quantum mechanics is directly relevant to to free will. Well, it means that the the future is not determined. Right, and you can call that free will if you like. I mean, it, something or other happens without any identifiable cause. And okay, so now again, now that I'm sitting across from you, uh, let me ask you some questions about foundations of quantum theories, yes. since you brought this up. Um, let me back up and ask you a specific question. Um, how, does the, how does making a measurement, how does making a quantum measurement, how is that related to this mind business? Well, I would say, it, I mean, I don't think it makes it any difference whether you have a measurement or not. I mean, the, the, the important thing is you're changing probabilities into facts. That, that have, even whether there's an experimenter sitting there or not doesn't matter. But the quantum mechanics tells you probabilities of things happening, and then at a certain point, they happen. Well, they happen if you make a measurement, though, right? No, you don't have to make a measurement. They just happen anyway, whether you're there or not. And, Oh, so this is, so this is, so you're a realist. 
Yes. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so that probabilities stop being probabilities and becomes become facts. And, and so the wave function then represents our understanding of, of the situation. It's not actually representing what's going on. What's going on is something happens. No, I should say the wave function is not just our understanding. The wave function is 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 saying there are certain probabilities. Right. That things are going to that it is it, a statement about the future. Okay. But it's only probabilistic, and then uh, at, at a certain point where the so the accounts have to be paid and settled, then it, it, the probabilities disappear and become facts. So let, let's let's talk a little bit more about about. Uh, about free will. So let me ask you a direct question. We as humans, let's not talk about atoms necessarily or, or quantum mechanical objects. We as humans, do we have free will or do we not have free will? Well, I would say we probably do. I mean, I wouldn't be dogmatic about any of this. I mean, no, just your view. I'm yes, not, I would say most likely, view. yes. And I think the brain is very likely sort of an amplifier which takes the individual choices of the molecules and and somehow amplifies them to make them do what we want them to do. And, and so then, is it fair to say that it would follow that we, uh, the reason why we have free will is because of the indeterminism of quantum theory in this amplification process? Because if it was all deterministic, then presumably we wouldn't have free will. Is that right. fair? Yes, I think that's true. But of course, it's purely conjectural. Sure, of course, of course. I was hoping for a little bit of dogmatism, but here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> hoping, hoping in vain. Um, let's talk about uh, origins of life. Yes. Well, actually, before I move into to biology, um, let me ask you a few things about things we don't understand in physics, and I want you to conjecture as much as you possibly can. Well, there's nothing really that we understand there. It is, I would say, we're just scratching the beginnings of it. It is. I mean, it's a very exciting discovery that the universe is accelerating, and that's all we know. Right. Uh, we only know that it was accelerating. We don't know what it will do next, and uh, all that is still far away from being settled. And so, I mean, I, I think to talk about dark energy may be misleading, just as a way of speaking. It gives you the impression it's something we understand. And well, that's a wonder, wonderful thing about nomenclature, right? You call something yeah. dark. <laughs> it's a good, it's a nice word. I mean, dark matter I like much better because dark matter really is what you, what you say. It, 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 is, it is matter and it is dark. Matter you can't see. Yes, so that I think is a better use of the word. So, so... But let me let me uh, please indulge me with a little bit of conjecturing. So it's very exciting that the universe is accelerating, and it's very uh, counterintuitive to, yes. to most people. Certainly, we never expected that. So, what why what do you think is going on? If you had to if you had to guess, and when you we're going to put your guess in a in a vault, and we're going to look at this in five hundred years or whatever it is that we're going to find finally get get an answer to it, um, and and. Uh, you or some form of you would win a prize at 500 years. What, what would your guess be? Well, the main question is whether uh, the acceleration is continuing exponentially 
which is the simple model that's at the Einstein mm. expanding universe with what he called the cosmological constant, which simply means a constant acceleration. And, and everybody assumes that that's it, except for a few heretics. Well, one of them is here, Paul Steinhardt. Do you talk to him? I have talked to him several times. I haven't spoken to him recently. Have but. you talked about the quasi-crystal that he found in Siberia? Said, I know he did work on quasi-crystals. I didn't know anything about Siberia. Oh, wonderful. It's a marvelous story. I mean, it is, it's a real adventure story. I mean, just quite, a, quite amazing. He actually found a natural quasi-crystal in the whole of Siberia to search. When, when was this? Oh, just a year ago. Really? Yes. And... They actually, they... What was he doing in Siberia? Well, he, organi <laughs> <laughs> he organized so. the expedition and, 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 and it was, I mean, it was a, a real cliffhanger. They, they, had, they were out there in this enormously wild and remote part of the world and, and they actually found the meteorite which had the quasi-crystal inside. <laughs> so it was made by nature long before us. And, right. It's a very great mystery. I mean, in order to make that kind of quasi-crystal, you have to have an actually a mixture with exactly the right proportions of three metals. Yeah, I know, I know very little. It's about. aluminum, copper, and iron. Yeah. They all have to be there in the right proportions. In the right proportions, okay. And they, I mean, you don't find aluminum without oxygen anywhere on the planet. I mean, you know, aluminum is always oxidized. So what do you what do you think that's indicative of? That's just well, it's another miracle. I mean, it's amazing. It's you can't just, just keep copying out and saying miracle every time. No, well, that's what happened. I mean, <laughs> Steinhardt gave a talk about this just recently, and it was this is tremendous fun. I mean, he talked with all these geophysics experts mm -hmm. and said, "Where can I find metallic aluminum?" And they said, "Nowhere. There is nowhere you could find it. It's right. just it's just always, always oxidized and." It's absurd even to think of looking for it. That's what the experts told him, and so he went and looked for it. And anyway, <laughs> he found it. <laughs> found it. <laughs> it, is, it is just an amazing story. And it all depended on some room, uh, some guy who had been in Siberia who had found a, 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 a piece of this stuff long before. And they didn't even know his name, and it was it was a huge detective work. When when did he find it? I don't. Oh, about twenty years earlier, and so anyway, it's a long story. But I should go talk to him. I guess. Yeah, you must talk to him. <laughs> I mean, that's a it's an example of physics, which is really just still going strong, and. and so, so the so the the message I'm getting from you from a, the physics perspective is, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Pay attention to something analogous to the solutions to these equations. Pay yes. attention. Pay attention to the, the the data points that are outstanding, the the things that are unexpected, rather than look for some giant synthetic overall solution. Yes, I mean the whole quasar crystal business was like that. Of course, I mean it started with Penrose and and right and just finding things that nobody expected. And so if you were, uh, this would be the, what would the recommendation be to some young person today, some 16-year-old uh, 
a superstar who is excited about um, the physical world and she's gifted in mathematics and she's motivated to explore these sorts of questions, what sort of uh, guidance would you give? What sort of advice would you give to someone like that? Well, I would guess that I mean, you have to join a group which is doing really interesting stuff. And that, I mean, that's what, that's the way for a young person to get into it. And, and so, I mean, uh, uh, Paul Steinhardt would be a good person to start with. And of course, he, he's a dreaded cosmologist, you know, I mean. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's, well, I mean, he's quite amazing. He does, everything he does is, is exciting. And, and well, this is turning into the Paul Steinhardt show. I had. Yes, he I has. Guess. I mean, it's true. I mean, I would say he's one of the real heroes. And Good to know. Um, let's talk about biology. Yes. If, if we may. Um, and le let me ask you to speculate, but speculation based upon an awful lot of previous thought and work and conversations and, and ideas about the origin of life. Yes. Uh, let's start off with how we'd even define life. I uh, don't. All right. Job, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the defining things is what lawyers do, but not, <laughs> not scientists. Okay. Uh, so when I say life, what sorts of things am I? Uh, well, let's not define it. Let's mm -hmm. let's. Uh, this is my legalistic instincts, I guess, coming to the fore. Um, how do you think life might have begun, however yeah. it's defined, broadly defined? Yes, well, I tend to think of it in terms of the, the, the experiments which have already been done, of little inorganic globules of iron sulfide and various other minerals which make little bubbles, and, and um, so you get something that looks like a cell, except it doesn't have anything inside. Mm. And, and uh, it may, might just be an oil drop or something like that. And then you start adding chemicals to it. And if you have a situation where there's a mixture of chemicals and confined in a little droplet, and then maybe it does some interesting things just by random chance, and, and you start getting a, a collection of molecules that are bigger than the, 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 the others, and they tend to stick inside the the globule, and uh, so it becomes something sort of a, a crude approximation to a cell. Right. So th th it seems to me that's what I would picture as a reasonable way to start, and, and that it's essentially a, a, a confined space with a lot of chemistry going on and a, a huge amount of randomness. That, uh, so it should nothing should be well, nothing should be well well tuned or exactly replicating. And so it, it it reproduces itself just by splitting up from time to time. So that but that that reproduction uh, presumably doesn't have that to begin with. So how it actually does that splitting up? There's no uh, there's no algorithm for that. There's no message. There's not nothing encoded at this point. It's just purely statistical. Yeah, that's, imagine that it's, it's a sudden, it gets hit by a raindrop or something and it gets split in two. And, yeah. and then the, the two daughters will have then the chance to evolve. And then it'll split again when something hits it. And so, how, so your particular beliefs and approach, how does that 
square with what a lot of biologists who, who are uh, working on these types of things, is that, uh, is that in accordance with their, their no, views? No, it's, it's not? absolutely opposite. I mean, what they do mostly, I mean, not, not all of them, but Manfred Eigen, of course, was the leader in this business and was also a physicist. And, but uh, anyway, I mean, according to the... Uh, I can view the, there was something called the RNA world where you had these RNA molecules which exactly replicate and somehow or other by a miracle they, they start replicating. So they were there before and then? They have somehow to have been there before, yes. Yeah. And, and, but that's all left completely vague. And then so they attract other things to themselves and then build up the rest of the apparatus. But as a general rule, um, most people still subscribe to that, or most biologists, most practicing biologists still subscribe to that. Well, at least correct? that's the way they talk. I, I mean, I, I, you don't know what they really believe. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always this talk about uh, replication is sort of the, ex the essence of life. And so it had to come first. And I see. So, so almost by fiat. Right, yes, they're, they're doing, but but it doesn't. I think it was a late phase. You had life of a kind which was going on quite happily, and then you had a parasite which was RNA, and okay, which learned how to, how, how to survive as a parasite. With, I, and and this RNA would have just arisen randomly, presumably. Not random, because you I mean you have this interesting substance ATP, which I'm is. Yeah, I mean, ATP is the link between the two worlds. And okay. But ATP is the energy carrier in all our cells. It's, you know, we, we live on ATP. It's, it's um, sort of, it's, it's, the, it's actually a, 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 a nucleotide. Or, or okay. That's the, the, the link between the two worlds. It, it, it arose and... It, it, in some way, it arose out of this metabolic system, the, the the old the old system without replication. It discovered that there's this particular molecule which is good for carrying energy around. So it started to depend on this ATP, this particular molecule, to carry energy. That happens just by happy accident to be one of the components of our, of RNA. So you could have this these primitive cells, which just happen to be full of ATP because they're using it for energy. Okay, so that's how RNA can get generated. So the RNA then grows parasitically I see. using this ATP as the, as, as the raw material. So that's what you meant as a parasite? That, that was yes, and that's, the, so that's my theory as far as it goes. And okay. So why, why, don't these, why don't these damn biologists take this stuff more seriously? I mean, well, because RNA is such wonderful stuff to play with. And <laughs> um, I did want to talk about, a little bit about The Prisoner's Dilemma and your, your, your latest work, but um, uh, I also wanted to talk, gosh, I wanted to talk about all these things. I wanted to talk about uh, your, your views about experimentally detecting gravitons, but, but, I, but let me move away from this because I think for the time being, at, at least, unless you're heartily excited to go back, because I think it's getting a little bit too specialized. I'd like, right. I'd like to generalize a little bit more and talk 
Um, first of all, I'd like to talk about space travel. Yes. Um, because uh, because that's just really fun. And and one of the things that, that you've done, which is so uh, really remarkable, is that you spent years of your life um, involved in in a project to design a spaceship that was powered by nuclear weapons. Right. Which I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> Um, and I, I want to hear you talking a little bit about uh, about that. I mean, you this is a, this to me is the stuff of science fiction, but presumably this was something that uh, you, you really believed was going to happen, and you were very excited by. Oh yes, oh, and it 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 it's of course a unique engineering system that it gives you high acceleration, which is what you need for getting off the ground. And high velocity, which is what you need for, for zooming around the solar system, it's the only system that has both. Right. And so it means, so with one ship you could take off from the ground and go anywhere you want. And and so it would have been a great deal simpler and cheaper if, if we could have gone that way. And and so it had all kinds of technical advantages. I mean, the fatal flaw, of course, was the radioactivity. Right. And, uh, Couldn't which, you have had a hybrid system that would have started off with chemical rockets that would have, with the payload just have been too heavy? Is that how yes? That would have been to totally defeated the point. Okay, but just <laughs> just in the middle, just to get or just to get out of the atmosphere until you can start. But that, no, that, the getting out of the atmosphere is. Uh, I don't know the numbers. Yes, <laughs> getting out of the atmosphere is really the the, 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 the tough part. Economic <laughs> from the point of view of economics is that's where what it really costs you and. and so anyway, no, you have either to do the thing from the ground or it doesn't make sense. Right. And anyhow, the radioactivity, unfortunately, just makes the things un 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 unacceptable. And that was pretty obvious from the beginning, except at, at that time, it was just a rather brief period when the United States and Soviet Union were detonating about 100 megatons a year. Right. And, and nobody seemed to mind. And <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last long. And but um, but this is a, this has been a long-standing dream of yours, right? Oh yes. travel, or, or at least not interstellar. Well, now perhaps, we have much better ways, of course. And but you must be quite. Um, it must be somewhat depressing, I would think, uh, for somebody who was involved in such an ambitious and exciting project in the in the in the fifties. To uh, for designing rockets to, to look at what's happened in terms of uh, technology and, and political will towards space exploration in the intervening 70 years. I mean, it's you no, probably didn't uh, think that, that this was what, where we were going to be in, in 2014. Though. Well, there are two completely separate enterprises in space, which I mean, uh, and there's the unmanned program right. and there's the manned program. I mean, the unmanned program has been spectacularly successful, and it's going wonderfully well. And, and I mean, the fact is, we can do with one ton of payload far better science than we would have done with a thousand tons using Orion. I mean, because just because of the instruments, right. and the instruments have just improved by many, many orders of magnitude, and that's what we did not foresee. That this whole idea, I mean, we were going out there like Darwin and the Beagle, you know, with Trumping around Mars and and, and, and uh, writing down everything we saw in little notebooks and bringing them home after five years to tell the world what we'd discovered. Mm. 
we never had this notion of broadband communications across the solar system. And so the, that uh, unmanned missions have been just wonderfully good, and, and we don't need the big payloads. In fact, we would, if you gave us a thousand tons payload now, you wouldn't know what to do with it. And so what should we be doing? If you were the president of the United States or, 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 or someone equally powerful, if you, if you had the opportunity to be influencing space exploration right now, what sorts of things would you be, would you be doing anything any differently? Oh, yes. What would you be doing? Because, I mean, the point, as I said, that's half of the program. That's the unmanned program, right. which is going ahead marvelously well. And so he should certainly support what's being done there and not, not chop the missions as it's now. Now they're actually chopping really? missions because they're, they're running out of money, and, and, which is very stupid. But so that should be sustained and, and could, could easily be done. And, and no, the other half of the program, of course, is the manned program, which is going nowhere. And, and that's been a total flop. What about, the, what about the corporate guys? What about guys like Elon Musk? And oh, I, that's good. I mean, I think there's a big chance that he'll do, do, do well. I mean, it's a, it's a huge way to go. They've wasted 50 years, and, and so it, it will take a long time to catch up. Do you think the private sector will increasingly be involved in this? Oh, definitely, yes. And the more, the better. And what role do you think is the time of big government-funded manned space exploration or space space missions? Is that over? No. Is there, is there a role for government? How should government interact with the with the private sector? Then? Well, I think they do interact quite well. And and, and uh, what happen has to happen is that the government has to think centuries and not just decades and it's difficult for governments yeah, to It's do. difficult for them to think decades, in fact, yes. rather than <laughs> the next election. But, but uh, with the MAN program uh, doesn't make sense on a time scale of decades. It's just, it's, it, it, take, it takes too long. And, and uh, in the end, uh, undoubtedly, uh, we'll go out and colonize the universe and everything will be very exciting. But that's not going to happen in 50 years. And so. You, they should, of course, after Apollo, they should have had a sustainable program. So made a, made their plans for a hundred years or something like that. They never did. Do you think that would change? Do you think government's attitude would change if there were more people of a scientific disposition who were involved in government? No. You don't think so? Oh, on the contrary, the scient <laughs> scientists are the worst. <laughs> so keep them out. Yeah. <laughs> No, I very well remember that in 1963, and, and you know, we were negotiating the test ban in, in, in Moscow, and Everell Harriman was negotiating the treaty. And I was a scientist at the, then at the disarmament agency, acting as backup to the negotiations. And so, so we generously offered to send some scientists to help him in Moscow. And he said, no, please, no scientists. If you want a treaty, keep the scientists away. <laughs> and, and that's, I think that's true in, in, in the, I mean, this, this long range expansion of what you want, want to like to call it, uh, colonization or whatever it is, humans on Mars, that's something that has really nothing to do with science or very little to do with science, and, and it shouldn't be confused with science. 
should be done as a human adventure, which it is, and it's also an international sporting event. And but also, what about the idea that um, it can motivate, such a program can motivate people, generations hence, to become involved in, uh, in scientific activity, broad brush. Uh, I mean, I've heard it said that the Apollo program um, had a tremendous impact in terms of its spin-off, generations later, of the people who were motivated to, to, to have a career in science or be involved in scientific activity because they were so inspired by what they had seen as, oh, as children. No, that's true, of course. I mean, the Apollo program was great, and it wasn't sustainable. And that was the fatal flaw. I mean, the, the, it, it was planned by Kennedy himself to be 10 years. Right. And I mean, he said that. Get to the moon and back in 10 years, and that's it. Right. And there was no follow-through, and, and so uh, it, 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 it just was a fatal mistake not to have a 100-year program. So it, well, it worked all right for 10 years, but that's it. And but if you take the long-term view, as you said, of centuries, of maybe even millennia, uh, we're, we're going to get there unless yes. we blow ourselves up, presumably, right? I mean... And that's, of course, what I'm... T t uh, talking about, I'm, I'm just writing just right now, a, a, a chapter about space program and, and, and uh, of course uh, what I'm preaching is essentially go back to Tchaikovsky and, and I don't know if you know Tchaikovsky's book, no. it's called Dreams of Earth and Sky and um, he set the program, that's why the Russians have always been good and Tchaikovsky is, is, is their big prophet, and, and, and he had all this in his head. Well, the book was published in 1895, and, and long before anybody else. H.G. Well, Wells, of course. I guess he would be the, the maybe maybe the Russian equivalent of H.G. Wells in this. To this extent, would, would that be fair to say or not? Well, he was much. Uh, no, I, th I, th I, mean, I Wells never really took space travel seriously. Maybe Jules Verne, maybe that's what I was thinking. Yes, yeah. well, I mean, both of them, of course, were good writers. Right. But Stolkowski really understood what you had to do. I mean, he, he wrote down the equations. He was a... Oh, really? Oh, yes. Stolkowski really understood the problems, and, hmm. and his little book has equations in it. And but you've also said that the Russians, maybe this is related, maybe it's not, but the Russians are much more patient as a, yes. as a general rule. They look that's at things on a different time exactly. scale. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that book explains why. I mean, he was thinking more like a biologist than like an engineer. And hmm. So his calculations, he wasn't just calculating rockets, he was also calculating closed ecosystems. And, Sure. Uh, all the necessary things right. you need in order to, right. to, to live in space. So for those people who really want to re-energize the, the space program, the manned aspect of the space program, what, what, should, what should they be doing? What Have a hundred-year program, I would say. I mean, just uh, set up a, a serious hundred-year program, and that's what we'd like to do. And should this be, right now, should this be an international consortia, or should this consortium, or should this, uh, this is just what should be done in the United States? I want a realistic... Uh, I, I want a realistic program for, for those 10-year-old kids to go out and, and, and participate in that. Yes, I would say a national program is probably the best. And okay. We always you collaborate with other countries, of course, but uh, it's 
good to have your own program first. Right. So once we've solved space exploration, or done our bit for the next 100 years, say, yes. um, let's look at science policy more generally. And that uh, is, is we, we talked about, or rather you said that um, it would be best if the scientists weren't involved in, uh, in, in the space, manned space exploration part. Yes, I mean, most scientists hate the, actually hate it. If you right. talk to them, I mean, they really think the manned program is a distraction from what they want to do. I have heard that, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, um, uh, the idea of science policy more generally, I mean, a, yes. a, a common refrain that one hears is there are so many issues of the day that are important that have a scientific context associated with it, be it climate change, be it uh, uh, energy, uh, be it nuclear energy or some other type of energy, um, that it's vitally important for there to be scientifically literate people who are involved in positions of political influence or structures that are set up. What is your view on that, the, the whole idea oh, of yes. how, how, that, how that should be framed and, and, and how science should be uh, involved in the, in the public process in a democracy? Yeah, well, certainly we ought to have more scientists in the government. And I mean, we just lost one yesterday, which is very sad. Oh. You know, our Congressman Rush Holt. He is, in fact, uh, the best there is. I mean, you know, I, I was so happy I could vote for him every year. And, and right. he's our local member, and, and he happens to be a physicist and a very good politician as well. And he just announced yesterday he's retiring and so there'll be one fewer. And is he the only one? Is he the only scientist? He was the person? best. I mean, there were about there were two or three in Congress, an absurdly small number. But it's, it's, the, the whole country, of course, is, is run by lawyers. And, right. and that's... I wonder it's made it this far. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, so more, more congressmen who have a scientific, a scientific background. What about the way things are structured in terms of uh, the National Academy of Sciences playing some particular role or another role, or special advisors to the to the president? Or if again, if you were, if you could redesign the entire stru uh, structure from scratch so as to make uh, science have a, a more coherent role to play or a more coherent system for science, how would you, how would you do it? I'm asking all the big questions. Yes, I, would, yes, yes I, I don't think that the organization really matters all that much. It's a question of people and, and it, it's uh, what you'd like is to sort of have the same fraction of technically trained people in the government here as you have in China, and mm. which is something over 50% in China. and. Over 50%? Yes, yeah, so the, the, they tend to be engineers, the people who are in, mm. in charge. And, and, and that, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it don't want to have nothing but engineers. And no, you certainly wouldn't. I mean, it's better than nothing but lawyers, but. but <laughs> <laughs> might be even worse. <laughs> but I, I guess. I keep getting back to this idea of the skeptical thinker, the independent thinker, and the role for more independent inquiry in, uh, in the broader public consciousness. Yeah. One of the things that I, uh, that I know um, you've been involved in or, or 
some arrows that have been directed at you have to do with some comments that you have made on, on climate change. Yes. And my understanding of, of the, the, the thrust of your comments are that you were, you were being uh, fairly critical of uh, the, the, the full quality of the science and the computer models that were, uh, that were generating the results, the conclusions that were made, and also not necessarily being sufficiently rigorous in examining all possibilities such as CO2 in the biosphere and so forth. That, that was my sense of, right. of, of, of what, what you were saying, rather than uh, being slotted into Dyson climate change denier or, or Dyson climate change skeptic or these, these sorts of ridiculous uh, categories that people like to throw, throw people into. So the message that I took away is, well, hang on, we should be a little bit more careful. We should look at, at, at what the calculations are actually doing. We should look at the computer models uh, more, more skeptically. Is that, is that a fair yes, assessment of, of yeah. where you were coming from? Yes. And have you been frustrated by the response that um, that was directed your way, or was that expected, or both? Uh, yes, I mean, I don't care particularly. I've been very, very lucky that I don't read most of the blogs. And <laughs> well, it's not luck; it's it's, it's will. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who are, I mean, the people who write to me the old-fashioned way, which is, I, I enjoy when they are critical and. They write. I get a lot of email correspondence, which uh, people who are, who argue about climate and so on the whole, they're always polite and. and uh, but I mean, I guess my, my frustration as a, as a bystander is, I look at this and I say, this is a complicated problem. This is a problem. This is a very complicated system. I, I certainly don't understand it. I'm not completely convinced that everybody that anybody understands it. But it, it's a it's a very complicated problem with all sorts of. Uh, different uh, uh, parameters. There are calculations that have been made. There's lots of data that's that's there. People are playing around with this stuff. I don't I don't have the the knowledge or the judgment to be able to make an assessment of uh, uh, of the programs or of the calculations that are actually being done. But I know enough to be skeptical when as soon as somebody says anything that pushes back against whatever conventional wisdom happens to be, they are anathematized one way or the other, especially by the mainstream media, who I have absolutely not the slightest doubt knows absolutely nothing about this whatsoever. <laughs> so that, that causes me some level of frustration yes. on the outside. No, I share that completely, yes. And, and this is, I guess, the, the point of, of scientists taking a broader role. For me, it's this idea of understanding that, no, Dyson's pushing back as, as in a, in a scientific way, in the spirit of scientific debate and scientific interchange. He's drawing attention to something. He's saying, well, I'm not convinced about this, or show me that, or maybe there's this, or maybe there's that. And that's part of the, the, the give and take and cut and thrust of, of any activity that you would see happening in any seminar room around the world, yes. where people are actually doing this. Um, and, but it doesn't fit in very well with the 24-hour news cycle, broad headlines, people <laughs> slotting things here and slotting things there, which, which doesn't matter in most policy cases, but does matter, I think, when you're talking about something that, uh, that, that has a significance to, well, to the world, or has a potential significance to the world, that we should take it more seriously, we should be a little bit more open-minded. Yes, I'm mostly concerned about things in England, in fact, because I happen to 
involved with an organization called the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I don't know whether you get the stuff. That's the, 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 they, they have an office in London just next to the Royal Society. And of course, they hate each other. Sure. <laughs> so why did they, who, who decided that they should be right next to each other? Oh, I think this was a clever move in a way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when dignitaries come to the Royal Society, they're easy, easy to, to waylay. <laughs> Anyhow, so the fellow who runs this global warming group is Ben Pizer. And so he's a, a reputable, I think he's an engineer. He used to be professor in Liverpool. Mm. And he's now full-time sort of self-proclaimed climate expert. And, and but I think what he says is mostly right. And that in England, the thing has become much more acute than it is here because they really are spending huge amounts of money on windmills. And, and I mean, this is, to me, a... a a real problem that uh, this huge amount of public money is actually being wasted and fuel bills are going up very fast and poor people are being hurt and and, and it's all because of this ideological notion that uh, windmills are good and coal is bad and, and but uh, windmills of course are vastly expensive and, and the more you have them, the, the, the more problems they raise because they are unreliable. And so if you have 5% windmills, that's okay. You can carry over the fluctuations. But when you get to 25%, it really becomes a big problem. And mm. The wind doesn't blow for a week, and then you're in trouble. And right. So England is really suffering because of this. And uh, so that's what... Uh, makes me more than just scientifically involved. But that's, that's also, it seems to me, indicative of something that you've consistently espoused, which is the importance to look at the bigger picture in terms of human dignity, in terms of uh, uh, raw economics. Uh, you've uh, you, you frequently invoked the the importance of looking at technology as a way of helping people, as a way of increasing human betterment, as a way of being a positive force on society. Um, and uh, this is, is a classic example of um, some of the comments that I've heard you say with respect to, to climate change uh, have to do with China. And, mm -hmm. and looking very concretely at, at the tremendous economic and social difficulties that exist in China and the importance to well-being of the people who live there in terms of having available energy and and that one should weigh that very much at the forefront of one's mind as one goes about making policy decisions. No, I agree. I mean, of course, I think the Chinese are handling it fairly well and that they're not being panicked the way the British are. But in Britain, they, I mean, there have been three presidents of the Royal Society in succession. There was Bob May first, and he was the one who sort of took this extreme position and advised Margaret Thatcher. And that was how the thing started. Really? Back then? I didn't realize that. And then there was Martin Rees, who is a close friend of mine, but equally dogmatic. And, and 
You have dogmatic friends, that's hard. And to then now there's Paul Nurse, and who's a biologist. I had expected he might moderate the, 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 the activities, but he has not. He's just as it's become since he became president. He's just as dogmatic as the others. Hmm. So it, it comes with the territory. Somehow. Yes, somehow it does, and and I think that the Royal Society has really behaved badly. And but but I, as I'm a, an American, not British. I, I don't take part in their internal debates. I thought you were a citizen of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it's interesting, this idea of technology and used for the betterment of mankind, and science used for the betterment of mankind. For me, um, I recently learned from a previous conversation I had with somebody who was an expert on C.P. Snow and the two cultures debate with Snow and Levis and so forth, which forced me to actually go and read C.P. Snow's uh, lecture. And I was amazed to discover that rather than um, uh, a diatribe merely uh, identifying the difference in temperament and knowledge between those of, uh, of a literary humanities persuasion and those of a scientific persuasion, a fundamental thesis of Snow's argument was that science should be used for the benefit, of, for the betterment of mankind, for the benefit of mankind, and we ignore that at our peril uh, if we wish to, to aid the planet and to, and to relieve the massive amounts of poverty that exist globally and that it, there is a moral right that we have to embrace and adopt scientific methodology and technology and scientific techniques in order to better our fellow humans on the planet. And that mm -hmm. was really the thesis of the two cultures, which I was completely unaware of because I hadn't read it, of course. Um, and it seems to me that that is a vein which runs through much of your writings, yes. and much of your m beliefs as well. Oh, and very much so, yes. And it's interesting to me that I also read that, um, that you, in fact, were, during the Second World War, recruited into Bomber Command because of C.P. Snow. Right. <laughs> So the, the wheels, and, and there is an English link to this. I mean, yes. you can't deny your English heritage, as it were. Oh no, I know. I feel very much uh, at home in England, and, and uh, but uh, but uh, so politically, I don't. I don't want to be uh, trying to push the Royal Society because I mean, since I am a foreigner, I, I'm not in a strong position to do that. And, did you have to give up your English citizenship? I didn't have to. I, I, I was delighted to. Oh. <laughs> the, queen, <laughs> you know, the queen declared my kids to be bastards. And when, when did this? That's, of course, a private question, but uh, it was... It, this it, wasn't it, in the biography that I read, you see. So anyway, no, it was a, bit, <laughs> it was a completely stupid business. But uh, so Esther, our, our oldest daughter, right. was actually stateless for, for her first 12 years. And that was very t troublesome. I mean, to have a stateless kid really makes life difficult. And, and we had to have a visa for every country we went to, which just takes a lot of time. Oh, it's horrible. Also, emotionally, presumably, it plays, it plays a role. Oh, it was a joke. In a way. But, but anyway, but uh, I was so happy when I could say off with you to the queen. and, and Off with her head as well. <laughs> I just, I, no, I, I, I formally abjured all 
loyalty to all foreign princes and potentates. And <laughs> Understandable. It's amazing that you can speak to me as a Canadian who's a, still a citizen of the crown, as it were. But anyway, <laughs> thank you for your indulgence. I appreciate that. No, no, I love Canada, of course, because George was uh, uh, treated very well by Canadians. And oh, he lived there for years. Yes, and he is a Canadian. He, he's got dual citizenship. And yeah. Well, there you go. Well, we give them out to everybody, though. I mean, you shouldn't. But anyway, I mean, they treated, they, Canada treated those kids extremely well, and he, he came to Canada as a refugee, essentially. Oh. Let, me, let me turn to religion, yeah. if I may. So, again, I'm going to continue with my, uh, with my thesis that you will uh, continue to deny, as, as well you should, as, as I expected you would, that you are somewhat unusual insofar as you are uh, an extremely well-established scientist who does not um, adopt the, I guess, what I would call the standard scientific atheistic view. Um, your views on religion seem to be complex. They, were, they wouldn't be standard religious views, I would say, either. But why don't I, why don't I ask you to elaborate on, on your religious uh, orientation or views? You made a mention a, a little while ago of, of mind and, and so forth and we were talking uh, a little while earlier but what what that, tell me tell me what you think about religion as it were or your religious views yes well i suppose i would say i should be a better jew than i am a christian i mean that uh, i mean to be a, an orthodox jew you don't have to believe anything <laughs> all, all, you, <laughs> all you have to do is to follow the rules and belong to the community. And, and that's what the religion really is. And it, it's a community religion and, and uh, it's not about belief. And, and uh, so that's my kind of Christianity. I mean, I like to be attached to a church. The music is beautiful, the literature is beautiful, and the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a social network that it is a real, in, in this town, um, it's the only thing that in a way holds the community together is the churches and the synagogue and there's, a, I believe there's, there's now a mosque of some sort of not far away, but I've never been there. And not yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> but what about your feelings of, I guess, what would be called spirituality or your views? Let's move away from organized religion. I want to come back to organized religion in a, in a bit because I want to... Uh, I want to contrast your views with, uh, I guess, this uh, a Richard Dawkins, like. Yes, I hate like Dawkins because I think I mean he 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 really does a lot of damage. He tells the young people you have to choose, either you'll be a scientist or you'll be religious, but not both, and mm. that turns a lot of people off doing science. And I think that's very stupid. So there's a pragmatic aspect to that. Yes, but is. Um, but presumably you also, well, let me not put words in your mouth. I can imagine that you would also believe that, uh, that that view is incoherent, that it is possible to, to have religious sentiment and, and scientific acuity or acumen or desires or, or what have you, that it is not in, in, incompatible to have both. Is that a fair... No, I would say most of my friends uh, have both. And, and, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's rare at all. Hmm. It's just the, the media always likes to portray the extremes and so that uh, if in, in the media it's always the fundamentalists on one side and the atheists on the other and hammering away at each other. 
but most of us are just in between, and and uh, we tolerate, can tolerate anything that, that is not at the extremes, and and so with most of the people in my church, probably like me, I mean, we don't talk about theology. That's not what we're there for, and right, and. Uh, but I understand that there, there is the, the ritual um, and there is following the rules, as you say. Uh, but what, do you, what are your beliefs in terms of, as I said before, might be termed spirituality or religiosity? Or what are your personal convictions or, or beliefs in terms of um, ways of knowing or ways of comprehending the universe that are not scientific. Would that be a fair way to? Yes, to and I would say that there's whole lots of things we know which are not scientific, and it's, it's religion is only one of those. And there's literature, there's just personal knowledge of our friends and children and ancestors, and I mean the, this whole network of human relations. And there is the the sort of feelings of good and evil that we have, and which are. Not scientific at all. As the whole of ethics is really nothing much to do with science, and and well, there are whole ways, there are all sorts of ways of getting knowledge, which are outside science, and that's fine. What's wrong with that? And, and um, science is a set of tools, but it's not by any means the only way. So, do you, would it be fair to say that that you think that? Um, <coughs> Richard Dawkins and his like are having a deleterious effect on society, yes. not just in terms of uh, the number of people who are going into science or not going into science, but just broad brush. Yes, I think so. They, they sort of they give a very misleading impression to, to the public as to what science is all about. But, but even going beyond science, this idea that that uh, religion should be ridiculed, or there is nothing else. Uh, the, the, what what is called spirituality is 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 uh, is simply sloppy thinking, or or or, 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 or whatever. I'm not uh, necessarily paraphrasing directly, but I think that's the general sentiment, yes, right? That, right. That, that, that unless you're you're pursuing rigorous, rational inquiry, uh, for which there is uh, there is nothing other than 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 some sort of axiomatic, rigorous, scientific thinking. Uh, you're just not thinking properly, yes. and, and you're superstitious, and you're silly, and this is a remnant from from a, an age which we should have long outgrown, and is holding us back, and all, all the rest of this sort of thing. And and you would uh, would it be fair to say that you think this is these sorts of sentiments, um, if followed by the vast majority of people, as as they hope that they, it will be, would be uh, would be catastrophic. Well, yes, I don't know whether it will be catastrophic, but certainly it's a great loss. And right. You see, I was trying to use some hyperbole to inflate the language to get, to get you pounding your feet. Fists. <laughs> so what should be done? Would you, would you have a debate with... Surely you must have had the opportunity to debate Richard Dawkins and, and, and his like. No, actually we, not. And, and would I, you I, go if you were asked? If somebody were to arrange I'm not that? sure. It, it's, uh, it depends what I had for breakfast and... and no, it's, I, <laughs> it's a good way to make decisions. <laughs> because to me, a lot of this, this debate, this discussion, and you alluded to that with your media comment, um, it's a way of generating a hue and cry. It's a way of getting attention. It's yes. a way of selling books. It's a way of getting on the news. It's exactly. A, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's a way of provoking some controversy. 
um, which it, it's it's not clear that it's it's the most pivotal issue of the day. It's certainly not an issue which is new. People have been wrestling with these questions for as long as people have been thinking deeply about the world around them, and and opinions ranging from uh, militant theism to militant atheism have been around for an awfully long period of time. Yes. So it's not really clear what the goal is other than self-promotion. At least that, that's, that's my sense of things. I don't know if you feel differently. No, I agree. And, and no, I think there is a real problem with Islam that uh, so many of my friends uh, sort of not just the Dawkins crowd, but even others think of Steve Weinberg in particular, who is generally reasonable, but he has very, very st strong hatred for Islam. And, and I think that could be a real disaster. If you, we, we should really try to understand what Islam is all about. And Islam is a very prickly kind of a culture and certainly it's not all friendly, but, but there is something there to be understood, and these people don't even try. That to me is, is sort of the, the most pressing part of the situation, that Islam is a case where you really have to understand religion in order to understand what's going on in the world. And, 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 well, and vice versa, presumably. I mean, insofar as the religion impacts on the politics, but the politics has impacted on the religion. Yes, there, very strongly. And, and so in, in Indonesia, there's a very different sort of, of, uh, uh, of Islam than there is in, uh, in Tunisia or, or, or in Saudi Arabia or what have you. Yes. Um, and well, well, I guess we agree a little bit too much. I was trying to lead you to inflammatory comments, but you refrained. You see, you're far too wise to. <laughs> no, that's why I think I wouldn't really want to debate Dawkins because I think it would just sort of play in the hands of the people who like to, to portray the whole thing as a shouting match, and it might easily become a shouting match. Is this a fad? Do you think? Will this just go away over time? This, this, uh, the, the, the neo atheists and the militant atheists versus the. the theists and these debates and these traveling circuses and all the rest of that, or is this going to be with us uh, at the level of inflammatory rhetoric that it's, it now is for, for years to come? Yes, I have no idea, but I hope it'll go away. But yeah. So advice to future generations, first of all. Uh, I want to get back to this idea that, that uh, you, should, you should tell people not to go into physics, um, or at least not the big physics, just the smaller physics that leads to equally deep things. Um, what are the really hot topics of science right now? If you were, if you were a 16-year-old yourself, knowing what you know right now, what areas would you, would you be very enthusiastic about going into? I think it, it's very hard to say. I think I would say not neurology. I mean, that looks like being sort of the next big thing to understand the brain. And right. We clearly don't understand it, and we clearly are getting the tools to study it. And... So I think if, if somebody who's young, I think you have a very good chance. Of course, I, mean, I would probably just completely miss what really should have been the right answer. But Sure, well, that's what speculation is all about, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So neurology, cognitive science, all, all the rest. That, of that to me looks like the the really promising area at the moment. But of course, I mean, astronomy is such fun too. And and so if you don't want to mess around with brains, it, it, too, it depends on what kind of skills you have. I mean, I always was more interested in biology in a, in a certain way than in physics. Hmm. But but it happened that mathematics could really do a lot for physics, and it couldn't do much for biology. Not yet. Yes, but I, so I came 100 years too soon, maybe. <laughs> but anyhow, so it depends very much on, on your skills. And, and what about pure mathematics? Because that was, a, that was a, a first love of yours and a continued love of yours. Yes, I still do it, in fact, as a hobby. And, and, uh, but what I do is very old-fashioned. And, and the real, so the real mathematicians are talking a language I don't speak. And How's that? What, what do you mean by that? Well, they, you know, I, I listen to their conversations. I have no idea what they're talking about. And, and so tell me what you think of string theory. Well, that that's softened you up. No, a string theory is, is, is a case of willful ignorance. I mean, I, I made the decision about 20 years ago when the string theory became fashionable that I would not take the time to learn it and because there were all these bright young people writing papers faster than I could read them and, and <laughs> <laughs> it would actually not be a good use of my time to, to study string theory. I think that was right. and So I deliberately stayed out of it. So I shouldn't really say anything. I, I just don't know anything much about the details. One thing I'm sure of, which is the only thing I will say, which is critical, that there are too many string theorists. That I got a postcard from Andy Strominger. Mm. I don't know if, if you heard this story. Or no, I, no, I, no, I haven't. But anyway, Andy Strominger is a string theorist. And that I know. Happens to be a friend of mine. Well, I got a postcard from him, from Ulumuchi. And I don't know if you know Mulamuchi is. I think it's just about the most remote place on the planet. You know, it's in the extreme west of China. It's a town which has had a lot of racial unrest. People who live there are not Chinese, but they're Uyghurs. And so there's a certain amount of strife, rather like in Tibet, with the Uyghurs are being maltreated and Chinese are immigrating in big numbers and anyway so I got this postcard from Ulamuchi said would you believe it there's a group of string theorists here but <laughs> 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 so that's a sign it's all over the world <laughs> and you can't get away from it anywhere and 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 the reason is very simple that it's cheap if you are running a physics department in Wulamuchi and you have no money and you want to be, have a modern physics department, you can't buy apparatus. It's just it's far too expensive. Sure. So you just hire a couple of string theorists and, and you're in. And, and, and yeah. there are a lot of smart people who are in string theory. Yes, for saying. that reason, so because there are jobs. Right. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a vicious or virtuous circle, depending on how you look at yeah, it. Because, because, it's, because it's cheap, there are, there, are, there are lots of jobs, and because there are lots of jobs, people go into it. And so, But in fact, there isn't enough work for all those people. And I think that's the real danger, that 
you have about 10,000 string theorists in full time around the world. And I would guess maybe 1,000 could really be contributing. And the situation is very precarious for the other 9,000. Right. So I, I think that's the real problem to my mind. It's just a social problem that it's been oversold. When you look back at your career, do you have, this is a bit of a cliched question, but this is one of these, the penultimate questions. So you have to ask, is it veer precipitously towards the cliche? Do you, do you have any strong regrets at all uh, about the, what you chose to work on or how you chose to do it? Would you do things differently in a radical way if, if, you, could, if you could rewind the clock and do them again? No, I've been so lucky. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I think when I have two talents, I'm a good calculator and I'm a good writer. And I sort of use both of those rather effectively. And I spent the first half of my life mostly calculating and the second half mostly writing. And I'm rather pleased with the way it came out on the whole. And <laughs> anyway, I mean, I've been lucky. And of course, a huge part of this, of course, is that I, I always said I, I have three priorities in my life. The first priority is family, the second priority is friends, and the third priority is work. And, and so I've never taken the work too seriously. And I think that's, uh, that's a big reason why I'm still happy at the age of 90. And to me, the family always came first. And it's done, I mean, the family has just been marvelous. And, I don't regret that. I certainly, I, I could have done more in science if I'd paid less attention to the family. So what would you have done more, more of? Is there anything that you, you look back and say, this particular area or that, or I left this on stone unturned? or, or? Not particularly, but I'm sure if I had neglected the family... Just in I, terms of time commitment. Yes, could I could have done, have more. done more, and I might have, have become an administrator and wasted, no. wasted the time. And, no, I don't see that. No, would it would have been a heck of a an institution if you had been an <laughs> And the, the scientific accomplishment or accomplishments, or maybe not even scientific, but let's say work related, which includes writing, um, and certainly includes science, but but doesn't include family and friends and so forth. Those accomplishments uh, that you are most proud of. Yeah, in some ways, ma random matrices, and uh, I mean, it's it's that was the subject where I think I really made the biggest contributions, and of course it's not important, but uh, important in what sense? Well, I mean, it, it, it's a sort of rather specialized part of physics that doesn't it doesn't make headlines and. It, it certainly, the work I did in quantum electrodynamics was much more important, but not uh, not really as substantial. And so it's all a question whether you judge by the results or by the actual work itself. And no, I'm asking you by the work itself. The work itself, I would say, the random matrices was probably the most satisfying. And, and in the case in the writing, of course, disturbing the universe is my favorite book because it was much more personal than the others. And I, and I, I took more time to write it also. How has your writing style evolved? I haven't really noticed. I mean, I think I've always liked short words better than long words, and short sentences better than long sentences. I suppose that's, I remember when I started reading German, I discovered Kafka, 
He's the only German writer who really writes short sentences, and, and it's wonderful. So I sort of, I, I think of Kafka when I'm writing. And really? The, well, the shortness, but not, not turning into insects and things like that. Oh, well, that too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Anything I haven't asked? Anything you want to say? Anything? This has gone all over the place, uh, as, I, as I warned you that it, that it might, but it's certainly been uh, an enormous pleasure for me. But are there things that, um, that are worth commenting on that uh, we, haven't, we haven't touched on? Well, I don't think of it now. I'm sort of squeezed dry and... and <laughs> I would, I'll probably think of things later, but that's it for the time being. Well, thank you very much. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking to well, you. Well, thank you. Thank it's you. a pleasure for me, too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Jenny Nelson, Claudia Duran, Lee Smolin, and Jill Tarter. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.